Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. To summarize our talks on the Satipatthana exercises so far, the teaching of the Buddha, for instance, on non-self, on suffering and craving, on conditionality, on the fabrication of the phenomenal world, and so on, is rarely an abstract philosophical proposition, but rather something grounded in direct experience. The Buddha says it is to be realized by the wise and invites us to come and see. Accordingly, a teaching, a Dhamma, is to be tested, verified, and internalized in terms of observables things we can comprehend in our own experience. Each Satipatthana exercise is a contemplation typically practiced on the cushion in the stillness of samadhi, but not necessarily, that advances that project. Satipatthana integrates an array of cognitive faculties to bear in accomplishing that result. It is the highest standard of advanced meditation practice and necessary for awakening. The exercises are organized under four groups called the Four Satipatthanas. We've already looked at the contemplative exercises of the first and second Satipatthanas one by one, contemplations directed at body and feelings. Recall that the worldling virtually always presumes that there is a substantial and fixed self that manifests as the body, the witness, or the mind. The first three Satipatthanas are directed at disabusing us of this notion through the teachings of the three characteristics of non-self, impermanence, and suffering. Today, we'll move on to the third Satipatthana, the single mind exercise. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind in the mind? Here, a bhikkhu comprehends mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He comprehends mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He comprehends mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. He comprehends Compact mind as compact mind, and scattered mind as scattered mind. He comprehends distinguished mind as distinguished mind, and undistinguished mind as unistinguished mind. He comprehends superior mind as superior mind, 
in unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. He comprehends composed mind as composed mind and uncomposed mind as uncomposed mind. He comprehends liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. As in the feeling exercise, there's a lot of Dhammic content in the exercise itself. The observables correspond to Dhammic categories, most of them, most of which the Buddha had a lot to say in the early texts. Let's go through some of these. Here, a bhikkhu comprehends mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He comprehends mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He comprehends mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. Lust, hate, and delusion are pervasive in the discourses in reference to unskillful or unwholesome factors of mind. Lust is sometimes replaced by greed, giving us greed, hatred, and delusion. We can also understand these as neediness, aversion, and confusion. Lust and hate are forms of craving, wanting to acquire or keep something, and wanting to avoid or get rid of something. Delusion is not seeing what is going on. The opposites of lust, hate, and delusion are renunciation, kindness, and wisdom. At any time, one of these six can dominate the mind, and we can observe them and their effects. The primary purpose of these contemplations is to gain insight into non-self and impermanence as described in the refrain and as we've seen in every other exercise so far. In this way, he abides contemplating mind in the mind internally, or he abides contemplating mind in the mind externally, or he abides contemplating mind in the mind both internally and externally. He abides contemplating in mind the nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in mind the nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in mind the nature of both arising and vanishing. As in every body and feeling exercise, we contemplate the observables internally and notice how they come and go. The unwholesome factors are unlikely to arise on the cushion but we often catch them in everyday life. Delusion is particularly elusive because in our delusion, we don't generally know we are deluded. Externally, we try to bring up that presumption that I am my mind and it is fixed and substantial. We find this presumption unsupported by the observables, which simply come and go. The nice thing about this exercise is that it has a lot of collateral benefits, advancing practices beyond right view, 
in particular lust, hate, and delusion in their opposites, are strongly implicated in ethical practice or in the development of virtue, and we have here the opportunity to examine their roles in a network of conditionality. In particular, greed, hate, and delusion are the roots of unwholesome karma, so-called bad karma. When they arise and when we act on them, we commonly end up doing some harm to others. We don't see things clearly when under the influence of lust or hate or delusion, so we don't tend to see their downside until it's too late. They are accompanied by immediate observable suffering or a degree of discomfort. These are further Dhamma teachings that initially will not be obvious, but we are invited also to verify them in observable experience. And as we internalize these insights, they will in turn direct our conduct in a more virtuous direction. These are collateral benefits of the Satipatthana mind contemplation. He comprehends attentive mind as attentive mind and scattered mind as scattered mind. The word I translate as attentive more broadly means concise, thin, slender, or contracted. The word for scattered is the opposite from the same root and can mean distracted, mentally upset, disturbed, or perplexed. The same word describes a body that is scattered, as in scattered bones. Is your mind ever like that? Attentiveness is required for satipatthana practice, but scatteredness might be your experience when you first sit down to meditate and certainly arises for most people off the cushion in daily life. He comprehends distinguished mind as distinguished mind and undistinguished mind as undistinguished mind. He comprehends superior mind as superior mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. This passage seems to refer to progressive progress in practice. Mind is undistinguished when we start out in Buddhist practice, but becomes more distinguished over time, particularly in developing qualities like renunciation, kindness, and wisdom. That is, we begin to experience these states more frequently in our practice. The mind becomes superior and then unsurpassed, which may mean awakening. The word here for superior is often contrasted with worldly to identify spiritual progress. He comprehends composed mind as composed mind and uncomposed mind as uncomposed mind. What I translate as composed comes from the same root as samadhi. So this is best observed on the cushion during Satipatthana practice, as the mind is at first uncomposed, particularly if the hindrances are not cleared and the mind is either actively wandering or the particular theme of contemplation is confusing 
and requires a lot of effort to center around. But normally during Satipatthana practice, the mind will settle into composure and jhana. The exercise of the seven factors of awakening gives additional support for this. We'll come to these under the fourth Satipatthana. This practice traces the process of settling the mind into samadhi during Satipatthana practice itself, first passing through antecedent states of rapture and serenity. He comprehends liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. Liberated mind generally refers to awakening. However, practitioners may sometimes experience fleeting states of liberation when lust, hate, delusion, life's problems, and suffering are all absent, only to return a bit later. In terms of the analysis promoted in the refrain, the logic of contemplation of mind is much like that of contemplation of body or contemplation of feelings. The observables are contingent, fleeting, and unsubstantial. This is recognized in internal analysis. What we never observe directly is anything that is substantial, fixed, or whole that we could call a self, a whole body, a witness, or a whole mind. The evidence for the presumption of such a thing is simply absent. This is external analysis. Almost anything that goes on between your ears could have been presented as evidence in this case, the range of emotions and thoughts. The description of this exercise chooses to focus on states that tend to dominate for short periods and that have connections to Dhamma, practice, and stages of progress in our practice. In this way, we attain collateral benefits, in particular monitoring lust, hate, and delusion, which are the roots of a lot of other factors, such as jealousy, restlessness, guilt, denial, insecurity, and so on, and which are conditions for the worldling, for most volitional choices, should become routine as a part of Buddhist practice. As we live our lives and engage in everyday affairs, we should constantly be asking ourselves, what are my intentions here? Is it greed? Do I want to get something out of it for myself? Or have I relinquished self-interest, maybe just this once? Am I angry, vengeful, mean? Or can I find a place of kindness to motivate what I'm about to do? Am I clear about this and what the consequences might be? Or am I confused or blinded by passion? This is the primary way we develop virtue as ongoing purity of mind, in addition to following the precepts. The particulars of the mind exercise point us in this direction, but the practice of monitoring intentions is a collateral benefit fully developed in the virtue practices of right attitude, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. 
within the concerns of Satipatthana, the mind exercise, has the results described in the rest of the refrain. Recollection that the mind exists is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and know-how. He abides independent. He doesn't cling to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind in the mind. We don't dispense with the concept of the mind-self. It is a convenience that we just realize is empty of substance. We no longer presume it or the body-self or the witness-self actually exists out there. This is how we stop appropriating the things of the world as me and mine are clinging. This is how we end suffering. To conclude today, I want to say something about the roles of samatha and vipassana, two words that have come to dominate thinking about meditation in Buddhism and apparently in yoga, broadly speaking. Sometimes they're distinguished as separate meditation techniques, incompatible techniques that cannot be practiced at the same time. In fact, they're fully explained within the Satipatthana framework. And the references to these in the context of meditation practice are extremely sparse in the early texts. Samatha means settled or calm, and is a common word in Pali. For instance, a dispute that has been resolved is called samatha. In the context of meditation, it suggests samadhi though it's never defined that way in the early texts, but seemingly, but seemingly the higher jhanas, beyond discursive thinking. Vipassana is analysis, literally seeing apart, which is what we do in Satipatthana, internally and then externally. It's easy to see why one might think samatha and vipassana are incompatible. How can one analyze non-discursively? In fact, it's a basic tenet of Satipatthana rethought, not only that we humans are capable of doing that, but that we do it all the time. Any skill requires analysis at some level. We acquire and internalize the skill through practice. Buddhist practice is no different. But internalizing a skill, learning to do it quickly and precisely, involves a fundamental change in how analysis occurs. When we are beginners, we need the discursive, actively thinking mind to do our analysis but that is slow and takes a lot of effort. Through development and cultivation, in repeated practice, we are soon able to perform pretty much the same analysis so quickly and effortlessly that we're barely aware or totally unaware that we are doing anything at all. I've used the skill of driving as an example in a number of my talks but pick any skill you are proficient at.
Kung Fu, Basket Weaving, Satipatthana. Next week, we'll move on to the fourth Satipatthana, the contemplation of Dhammas. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org slash chintita. That is S-I-T-A-G-U dot org C-I-N-T-I-T-A.